Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. And this week we're on sub, being submerged. And so if any of you were baptized through immersion, which is the only way, no, is, is one of the ways. Um, but if you were through submersion, you, you're, through immersion, then you were submerged under the water. And that's supposed to give you a picture of, of death, right? You're, you're dying to sin and then you're being raised to life uh, in Jesus as you come out of the water. And so this week we are going to specifically talk about the death of Jesus. So it's an important question. Um, if I were to ask my kids who are nine and six, uh, why did Jesus have to die? And they would probably respond because they're kids that have a pastor as their dad. I hope they would respond this way. They say, because of our sin, we needed forgiveness from our sins. And I think that's a great answer. I think that that is uh, absolutely what is in the Bible. Um, but I think that sometimes people raise other questions around that. They say, well, why couldn't Jesus just forgive us? Did you ever think about that? Like, why didn't he just say, you're forgiven? Instead of coming to earth to, in, in, in living uh, a life as in uh, coming to an oppressed people, right? Experiencing uh, condemnation and, and shame and pain and suffering why did he uh, submit himself to that and then ultimately to the worst death imaginable, a crucifixion, death on the cross? And so this, to answer this question fully, it would take many sermons and probably lots of good books uh, and it, to give us a, a much bigger, fuller picture than, than maybe what I'm going to share today. But I want to take a crack at it and I want to give at least two reasons today that I think that Jesus needed to die on the cross and I hope that it begins to make, give, make sense and why it's significant um, that Jesus didn't just say you're forgiven and why that wasn't good enough and why we needed Jesus to actually die on our behalf for our sin. So why did Jesus have to die? The first thing I would say is to win the war. Now, some of you would say, what war, right? What, what war did Jesus fight? Uh, I've heard of other people coming and leading insurrections against the Roman government at that time period. And, and maybe you've read some history in that front, but Jesus decidedly didn't do that. And so what are you talking about? But I, so I want to start with the context of this passage, and then I want to build from there um, from, based on John 10. So if you can imagine, you're in this a small Jewish village uh, at the time of Jesus. And so when Jesus is describing uh, about sheep and, and shepherd, this was a common thing that they would experience, a common thing that they would know about um, in that time period. Most people did not have a lot of money, so maybe they would own two, three, four sheep. And the, the wealthier you were, the more that you had. And they would be kind of in your backyard, and you may have a gate that kind of guards the sheep from leaving. Or in some cases, you'd have one of your kids literally lay in front of this like this entryway, so the sheep wouldn't get out at night. That would be part of their job. And most likely every village or every, you know, maybe there were 10 or 12 homes that would have a few different, you know, a few sheep themselves. They would hire one shepherd to take care of all of the sheep. 
And so they would walk by these homes early in the morning and they would yell out to the sheep and the sheep would know the shepherd, right? Because it was their shepherd and, and, the, and they would know him by his voice and he would know them by their names. And the gate would open because the kids would know that this is the shepherd and there was no problem. So Jesus is giving this image of what took place in that time period. And then he, he goes on to say something unique. He says, if they are not the shepherd, they'll have to climb over the wall or break in through the gate. Because, and you know that they're not the shepherd because the, the, the gate will not open. The, the gatekeeper will not open the gate for them because the sheep will not know them by name. That is a, a thief and, you know, and a liar and a, and a destroyer. And then the passage goes on to say, um, in verse 10 is kind of the climax, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come to give you life and life to the full. Now, um, again, most people have spiritualized this passage immediately. They've moved directly to say the thief must be Satan, and Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And that is absolutely true. I mean, Satan's... Desire is to destroy your faith and to destroy you. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy your life. But Jesus is actually speaking of something historic that took place in that time period. And he's actually speaking about actual thieves, actual false messiahs, false shepherds in the time period that he was um, living in. So I want to take you through this because I think that context is important. Sometimes understanding um, what Jesus is saying contextually can help us then fill in the bigger picture. So, for example, and this is how I explain it to people. Why did we not pick up on that right away that he's talking about um, these false messiahs? It's because we don't understand the imagery that he's using. The words that he's saying have significance in that time period that they don't have significance to us today. So if I were to say uh, 9-11 or Ferguson, you, instantly in your mind, everybody in this room would probably say, well, 9-11 means something to me. I think of stories. I think of what happened um, you know, years ago, and that's something that I lived through or heard about uh, or experienced myself, right? Like, like that maybe you knew somebody that was in New York at that time, or maybe you had a, a family member that, was, that, that, that died, and, and that, like, that took place, right? Ferguson does the same thing. It brings up images. And so Jesus is speaking in a context where people would have heard much more than we do when he's saying these words. So let me give you an example. So there was a, a Messiah that came called Anthrogis, and he was a, a shepherd himself. So you can see the imagery that Jesus uses here. And uh, he was known as the shepherd. And as the shepherd, he employed guerrilla warfare uh, tactics against occupying soldiers, against Roman soldiers. He would also do it against Herod's soldiers. And he was known as uh, for how many people he could kill. But in the end, he was killed, and all of his followers, or most of, most, uh, all of his followers were killed as well. So you could say that uh, Enthrongis came to kill because that's what he did. Second uh, false messiah, and there were many more than the ones I'm going to list today, but just as examples, Judas bar Hezekiah. And he actually grew up just four miles away from Nazareth, where Jesus uh, was from. And he probably knew of uh, Judas bar Hezekiah as a teenager. Isn't that interesting? That someone claimed to be the Messiah when Jesus was a teenager. And Hezekiah was known um, for leading a revolutionary movement, but he was known for robbing Romans. Stealing from the rich, right, and giving to the poor Jewish people. So you could say that Judas Bar Hezekiah came to steal. He was killed, just like the other false messiahs, eventually. 
Simon of Perea died in 4 BC, which is around the time that Jesus was born. And he had been a Jewish slave of Herod. And he was a slave in the palace, but then was able to escape. And uh, he claimed to be the Messiah and led a revolutionary movement as well. And, um, and, but his biggest claim, and he actually was crowned king of the Jews by many of the people that were following him. Uh, and his biggest claim to fame is that he burned down the palace of Herod. So you could say that he came to destroy. So you kind of get the picture. When Jesus is saying the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, he's speaking of actual false messiahs that were leading Israel down the wrong path. And so Jesus, when he says that I am the good shepherd, I am the gate, and the sheep know me by name, and the only way, essentially, it, like, to, is to go through the gate is to, like, is to follow me. He's declaring right then and there that he is the Messiah that they've anticipated that is to come. And the way that they led their revolutions and the way that they lived their lives is actually different than the way that he was going to do his and lead his kingdom and what his kingdom was all about. But at the same time, scholars take this and say Jesus is speaking beyond just these cultural contextual moments. And he is speaking of the, the demonic forces in the world, the darkness that we know, these, these um, Satan and his dominions who wreak havoc around the world uh, even to this day. See, the New Testament authors and Jesus himself would have believed that they're in the midst of a cosmic battle. Satan and those with him have run rampant, sent out for destruction. They were in a cosmic war zone. So evil in the first century wasn't just something that was inside our hearts, as we often talk about it, sin in our flesh. But evil exists in the world, in systems and structures. There's darkness that exists outside of human beings and actually is leading people astray. Satan has done everything in his power from the very beginning, ever since the garden, to hinder God's purposes and obscure God's message. So according to John, Jesus believed that Satan was the prince of, was the prince of this world. John goes so as far as to say that the entire world is under the power of the evil one. While Paul doesn't shy away from saying and labeling Satan the god of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of, air, of the air. Luke, in his gospel narrative, particularly when Jesus is in the wilderness, chapter 4, helps us see that the battle that Jesus was fighting was not simply uh, a, a trying to liberate the, the Jewish people from Roman rule and oppression which is what so many of contemporaries and all the messiahs that came before him believed was the goal. Jesus came to set the world free from Satan and his kingdom. Everything Jesus was about was centering on vanquishing the satanic empire, taking back the world that Satan had seized and restoring its rightful place. Each one of Jesus' many healings and deliverances were understood to diminish Satan's hold on the world and to liberate, and to, to, to liberate people to whatever degree from his stronghold. Paul taught they must understand that their real struggle is not simply against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. 
So what Jesus did was to drive out the prince of this world, as it says in John 12, 31. He came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. He came to destroy the one that has power over death. That is the devil. In order to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death, Hebrews 2, 14 through 50. Jesus lived, died, and rose again to establish a new reign that would ultimately put all his enemies under his feet. At the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them, as it says in Colossians 2, 15. In a word, Jesus came to end cosmic and the cosmic war that has been raging from creation and to set Satan's captives, us, in the systems and the structures of this world that promote and bring about evil free. And I think that this is really important for us to understand. That Jesus didn't just come, didn't only come to die for our personal sin, but to break down the systems and structures to take Satan's rule away from him. And this was accomplished, according to the New Testament authors, through the cross, through his death, and then his defeating of Satan in the resurrection, defeating of death in the resurrection, and defeating like evil in the world, and particularly Satan. So I know that this is... Um, like, it's kind of weird to talk about the demonic and Satan. And I remember when I was a kid growing up, my parents would mention these things, and I would just kind of, like, shudder in fear. Like, oh, my gosh, like, is Satan around that corner? Like, where is Satan? And I think that so often we're a little uncomfortable with that, like, in the 21st century. Like, we're too sophisticated almost to believe that, like, everything is spiritual, like, that's in, we're encountering in our lives. And there's actually real forces of darkness and, and light happening in, in the world. But let me kind of explain it in a way that maybe would help us understand it a, a, a bit more. And what I mean by like evil systems and structures that we don't often like say this is like darkness or this is demonic. Have you heard the phrase before, give a man a fish and he will eat for a day. Teach a man to fish and he will eat for a lifetime or he'll always eat. And I've always thought, well, that's a pretty good saying, right? So the idea behind this is that, like, well, the handouts will be good. It'll feed somebody in, in the moment. What we need to do is empower people so that they can fish on their own. And we just need to get them to the place where they can fish on their own and everything will be okay. But there's um, a group of people from South Africa that took this phrase and they explained how it isn't fitting for when systems and structures are broken. This is what they said. The problem with this saying we in South Africa have discovered is that even when you teach a man to fish, there are still signs that say no fishing, no fishing allowed. So in addition to teaching a man to fish, we also need to take down the no fishing signs. See, there are systems in place that prevent people from fishing, whether they know how to fish or not. So you can give people all the right equipment. You can give people all the right training. But if the signs make it illegal for you to fish, then that's a whole other problem that you have. And there are systems and structures in our society. There are all sorts of things that are infiltrated by evil and cause damage onto uh, our, our fellow uh, people in the world. And we can see countless examples of this. So when it says that Jesus came to destroy the works of, of the devil, 
to defeat Satan, to win the war. This happened at the cross where Jesus dies and raises to life, defeating Satan, defeating death, and declaring that those systems and structures, though they are so powerful, are broken and will ultimately be defeated by the kingdom of God. So the first thing that Jesus comes to do is to win the war against Satan. The second thing that Jesus' uh, death on the cross does and what it accomplishes is that he bears the weight of our sin. In this passage, and we're going to have to go a little bit beyond this passage, but in this passage, it says it four times in verse 11, and we didn't read to verse 15, but in verse 15, verse 17, and verse 18, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus goes on to say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Four times. And we have this picture, this picture of what the kingdom of God is really like. What type of Messiah that Jesus is going to be. That his death is actually going to pave the way for victory in a way that we, in our, in our kind of mortal minds, in our worldly expectations of how battles are won are going to be disrupted and destroyed. And so I want to do a little work on this too because I think this is really important that sometimes um, there is a characterization of, of God and Jesus when we talk about Jesus bearing the weight of sin that I think is a little bit unhelpful. And what it does is it severs the Trinity. And it basically says that God the Father is really, really angry and has this incredible wrath against humanity. But Jesus is love and he comes and steps in the way. And so almost like God the Father has a stick, he's ready to like hurt us. But thank goodness Jesus steps in the way and we can have salvation and forgiveness in him. And I, and I think that... First, we have the, we have a, a incomplete definition of sin and an incomplete picture of God. So I want to cover those two things briefly before making the point. First is this: I think sin. I think sin is sometimes misunderstood. Often, what we do is we think of that God has this moral standard. God wants us to obey it. Oh no, I haven't done that. So God is angry at me. And like I said before, fortunately, Jesus gets in the way and takes upon that wrath on my behalf. And I know that's like a characterization, but honestly, I, I, and I say that as a characterization because that's what a lot of people believe. That's like kind of how they've been described, the gospel. And I think that this is kind of an inappropriate way to think about how God is, is speaking about the cross in the, in the scriptures and what Jesus is actually doing in the incarnation and, and becoming the new Adam and taking on our sin at the cross. I think that we've, we've kind of made this, like, we're, we're trying to meet this moral code. And morals are really important, but humans are more than moral-keeping machines. We are, at our very core, called to reflect God's love in the world and reflect the praises of creation back to the Creator. So in the book of Revelation, the blood of the Lamb shed in the new Passover is shed in the new Passover so that we might become a royal priesthood not just so that we can go like, thank goodness, I'm going to heaven now. The blood of the lamb is shed so that we can be a royal priesthood. We have been given, like what's, what it means to truly be human is to be a participant in the kingdom of, in the kingdom of God. 
We are meant to reflect God's love in the world and reflect praises back to the creator. In other words, sin is much more about us failing to live up to our vocation of what God has called us to do. The New Testament isn't simply saying, I am very sinful, which is true, and now someone has died for me and now I get to go to heaven. But I think sin is even bigger than this and that it's a failure. It's a missing of the mark. And it's not just like individual things. It's like our whole lives. Does that make sense? So the missing of the mark is like you're trying to, like imagine you're an archer and you're trying to hit a target and you just miss the whole target. So like our whole lives are misappropriated from the way that God would desire us to do. It's not just like a, a couple individual sins that have like somehow separated us from. It's like our whole lives are off track. We've entirely missed the mark. We've missed what it means to genuinely be human, what it means to be made in the image of God, something that we are supposed to be doing and being in, in, in the world. And sin, what sin does is it, it leads us to these cheap alternatives that we eventually worship, right? Power and sex and money and on and on and on and on and on. And so, we, and so what essentially happens is when we miss the mark, when our whole lives are off, is that sin begins to have its grip on us because we're so outside of the line of where God would want us to be. And this grip is, is tight and it's like bounding us. It's the way the Bible would kind of describe it. And so when Jesus dies for our sin, it releases the grip of of sin on our lives and the Holy Spirit can come in and lead us into a new way. I think the second mistake that sometimes happens is that though, though like, uh, in, in not understanding the fullness of sin is sometimes we don't understand the fullness of what's happening um, in the Trinity at the cross. Jesus rescues us from all the things that get in the way of us being these genuine human beings that we're supposed to be. But the cross is primarily, in my mind, the love of God on display. It's not the loving Father and the loving Son. It's the loving Godhead. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Not that God so hated the world that he killed his only Son. The cross is the sovereign act of love on behalf of the Father himself. The death of Jesus reveals the love of God. Paul says in Romans 5, God or commends his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of God. And what happened on the cross is a Trinitarian event. Now, there's a mystery there of how that all works out. But God, the Godhead itself, decided to come and to redeem, to come and to save. So loved the world they couldn't bear to see us in the grip of sin and under the dominion of darkness. So Jesus says, takes on the full weight of sin and not just ours, but the whole world. The passage in Romans 8, 3 through 4 says, there's no condemnation because God has done which the law couldn't do. He became a sin offering for us and he condem condemned sin in the flesh, flesh. God passed condemnation on sin in sinful flesh. Paul doesn't say God condemned Jesus, but sin in the flesh of Jesus. So Jesus took on all of that. And so Jesus becomes our representative substitute. He takes our place, taking the condemnation 
upon himself, condemning sin. Sin is condemned, then new creation can begin, and this energy of the Holy Spirit can take us and move us forward and give us life and life to the full that Jesus promises. And so sometimes it's a little bit difficult for us to see Jesus as this representative, right? We don't think that way. We think as individuals, right? So why, how can Jesus take on the sin of the whole world? But that's how sin enters into the world, right? It declares, uh, the, the scriptures declare that in one, one man, Adam, all died, right? Through the sin. And so in Christ, all are made alive, so there's this picture of Jesus being the, the, the new and better, new and greater Adam. That his whole life, he's, he's undoing the fall. So that's why when we think of atonement, it's not just, just Jesus' death on the cross. It's his whole life Jesus is making atonement for sin. Reversing the curse, reversing the sin that Adam and Eve made in the garden. And so just like David was the representative of Israel when he defeated Goliath. The Messiah was, and there's whispers of this all throughout the Old Testament. The Messiah would come and represent Israel, but not just Israel, but the whole world. So when Adam all died, so in Christ all could live. This is how Paul logic works. One died for all, therefore all died. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 14. And thus, seven verses later, he says, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. He concluded seven verses later, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is the idea of uh, Christ took our sin and we got his righteousness. And I think the, the last thing that I want to say about the cross and why the cross is, is necessary is I think that the cross takes the depth of evil and sin in the world seriously. And I want to uh, kind of help us understand this is I think that we so often... I think it's because we're, we're missing the mark so much <laughs> that we don't see the, the depth of, of evil in the world or just becomes numb to it. I mean, just think about what happened just this week. Somebody just mass murdered a bunch of people. And this happens all the time in our society. Think about what we've seen, the, the, the incredible racist acts we've seen this last year take place against Asian people and black people and I mean, it's incredible, the darkness and the, the sin that is involved in our world. And not just like everybody out there, but the things that I do in my life, if I'm truly honest and if I'm sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Mirsal Wolf is a famous theologian. And he, uh, he grew up in a, a war-torn country in Eastern Europe. And he was witness to uh, many people being killed and being raped and being murdered uh, in front of him and it happened to his friends and family and things like that. And so when he talks, and Marcel Wolf is really unique because he, uh, he's a pacifist in the midst of having experienced like that sort of thing in his life, which is pretty remarkable. And he talks about forgiveness and he says this. When, we face, when faced with radical evil to say, oh well, don't worry, I will love you and forgive you anyway. That is not forgiveness. Certainly not reconciliation. It is belittling the evil that has been done. Genuine forgiveness must first exclude, argues Wolf, before it can embrace. It must name and shame the evil and find an appropriate way of dealing with it before reconciliation can happen. Otherwise, we are just papering over the cracks. 
If God does not hate the wickedness that happens in this beautiful world, he is neither a good nor a just God. Jesus Christ, as God coming down into the midst of this mess and the muddle to be with us and to rescue us, that rescue was affected by the cross of Jesus. So I want to try to explain what I think, like forgiveness is costly. Uh, about six years ago, we had somebody break into our, the space we were meeting before as a church over in the uh, Preston Bradley Center in Lawrence in Sheridan. And someone kicked in the door for all of our equipment. And we had, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of uh, sound equipment in there and other things. Uh, but they didn't take anything, which is kind of weird, right? Like, I don't know what, the, what that seems like if you were looking for something, the sound equipment would have been the thing you're looking for. But maybe they were looking for some petty cash or something else. I'm not sure. But let's just imagine for a moment that all of the equipment had been taken. All of our stuff, thousands of dollars worth of equipment. We could go after that person uh, if we knew who it was and we could punish them because what they did was wrong. We could report them to the police. They would be punished and it's against what is right and good and true. Outside of what God's holiness would demand from us, outside of the, the image that God wants us to live in the world, it's missing the mark, right? And, and, and the loss of all that equipment would have, been, would have been given us every right to be frustrated, disappointed, and even angry in some regards. And so if people just say, well, just, just forgive. There is a sense where I could say, yes, I forgive you. But what's taking place when I say that I forgive somebody and like wipe the slate clean with someone that stole all that equipment? I have to bear the weight of that. Meaning I have to actually pay to get new equipment. There's actual cost to that forgiveness. Or I have to go without equipment. Like our church has to not have equipment anymore, right? Either way, we are bearing something in order for that person to be forgiven. Does that make sense? And I think sometimes we think of forgiveness as just like, oh, Jesus could just be like, you're forgiven. But the weight, the burden of that sin is not accounted for. And so at the cross, the justice of God and the love of God are on full display. This is what we are saying happens when Jesus takes our place. He takes what we deserve and he bears what we deserve so that we might be free. We might be forgiven. He bears our burden. He bears our shame. And he gives us his righteousness. So at the cross, what happens is that, Satan, is that Jesus wins the battle over Satan. He defeats death through his resurrection. He breaks the powers of darkness in the world. He sets us free from sin. And he gives us his righteousness and the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's briefly why we need the cross. And I think as we head into the season of Easter, and we remember what Christ has done for us, I want us to be able to lift that up. That by his wounds, we have been healed. And not just us, but the whole world. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.